This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. When I'm not in the studio making this show, you can often find me in a classroom. And this semester, for the very first time, I'm teaching a class on science writing. And early on in a conversation with one of the really bright students in the class, I was asked a question that I didn't really know how to answer. The student wanted to know how to stay optimistic in an environment in which science seems to point to a world of impending doom. And this stopped me because as a teacher, I try really hard to be optimistic, to tell my students that they can have a big impact on the future. But the damages that we've done to our world, the damages that we're doing are of such magnitude that I'm not sure people should be optimistic. But how should they feel? Well, today we're putting that question and a bunch of others to a scientist who has made it his mission to help communicate critically important stories, powerfully, meaningfully, in such a way as to build a common scientific foundation of understanding and consciousness. Rob Davies is a physicist whose career has taken him through atmospheric physics, surface physics, and quantum optics. He's taught at three universities. He's worked as a project scientist for Utah State University's Space Dynamics Laboratory and played a role as a technical liaison for NASA's International Space Station. His primary focus for the past decade, though, has been on what he calls critical science communication, principally focused on global environmental change. Rob Davies, thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Matthew. I wanted to start this conversation by asking you what the heck happened. I mean, you started your career as an undergrad in physics. You did your master's work in physics. You did your PhD in physics. Your thesis and dissertation were both on the physics of spacecraft. And at some point, something shifted pretty dramatically for you. You took a turn towards science storytelling. What What the heck, man? Yeah, you know, I ask myself that quite frequently. You know, I was in a research post at a university in England about uh, almost 15 years ago now. And right next door to my laboratory, I was working on a, in a field of physics called quantum optics, which is super fun, the quantum mechanical behavior of light, and um, having a ball. But one night down at the pub, I ran into some researchers at the institute right next to mine, which was called the Global Change Institute. Started going to some of the talks and sneaking out of the lab every now and then to do that. And I just became really struck with what science was telling us about uh, global change, and that's to the Earth system and to human systems. And, and in particular at that time, climate change and the gulf between what science understood and what the public understood. And it, like most physicists, I think, considered myself quite arrogantly, a, a, oh, I shall just explain it to them and they will understand so I was kind of coming to the end of that research post and thought, you know, I'm going to go back to Logan. I had a house here, and I'm going to take a year and call it a public service sabbatical and just hang up a poster and give some talks on climate change. And I did that. I hung up my first poster, and I figured four people would show up, and 40 people showed up. And after that, I discovered that the hunger among the public to understand these issues uh, was large. And so after the first year— I just sort of kept going, and after a few years, I felt like what I was doing was just far more needed uh, in science communication than what I had been doing in, in quantum optics. So I continued on, and here we are almost 15 years later. You said it was really needed. Why was it needed? What did you notice about, I guess, the state of science communication at that time? You know, I wouldn't call it science communication. It was just sort of the state of the public knowledge. And I, I didn't know anything about science communication other than, as I said, to sort of arrogantly consider myself a great physics teacher. And, oh, you know, I can explain 
the second law of thermodynamics to my freshman physics students, so therefore I can help the public understand global change. So it was clear to me that we were not making the decisions we needed to make as a society on these critically important issues. And while science communication is fun and, and always had a sort of an interest in that, although not knowing much about it, there's a difference between, you know, standing up in front of an audience for an evening of fun and talking about general relativity, which is super interesting and super cool. But we're just not making important public policy decisions about general relativity. We don't need to. So these topics that are fundamentally scientifically based, climate change, for example, we need to be making decisions. We're not making those decisions. And my thought at the time was it's because people aren't informed and, and don't understand. And, of course, the psychologists out there are just rolling their eyes at this point. So I spent the last 15 years um, coming to understand the nuance of this kind of communication. Did it strike you that the psychologists were rolling their eyes and maybe the problem wasn't as simple as that? You know, pretty early, I would say, because, of course, there's quite a cottage industry in the world of climate change denial and um, disinformation. And, of course, then a lot of people, for lots of reasons that I wanted to understand, were just simply not open to what I felt was quite clear and compelling scientific evidence. And so I started digging into the research on this and, and what do psychologists know about why we believe as humans what we believe? Why do we choose to believe these things? And, of course, it's, it's complex, and it turns out that the human mind is incredibly bad at rational decision-making and rational beliefs. We all are. But I needed to understand that because I was having such trouble getting through to certain communities and, and certain people. So my thinking on that has evolved quite a lot over the years, and I no longer spend a great deal of time trying to you know, move the immovable because the, the research that's been done in this convinces me that it's just not time well spent, generally speaking. And we're facing such time pressure on such critical issues that two things. One, it's just it's not a good use of time to try to convince people who are just, for all kinds of reasons, resistant to the information. And secondly, the polling is very clear that the resistance of those who just refuse to accept we have these enormous challenges is not what's holding us back. And so I focus now on trying to take those of us who get that we have these problems, at least to some level, often maybe don't understand the scale or the risks involved, but who understand that we have these problems, and trying to take that community of people and move them to behaving like it. And you do this, I mean, the way you frame yourself, and I find this really interesting, is not as a communicator or as an advocate or, or an activist. You call yourself a storyteller. Well, that's certainly one thing I call myself, but I, I think it's certainly fair to say that indeed I am an activist, and I am a scientist as well where I was trained as a scientist, certainly. But if my purpose is not just to communicate knowledge, but to move people to meaningful response, there's a whole, of course, enormous body of research and experience that we have as to how that happens. And when you start digging into it, you find, of course, that it wasn't Berkeley sociologists that were connecting us to, you know, the deep social changes of the 60s. It was 19-year-old musicians and filmmakers and writers, beat poets, we connect to difficult information through stories. And I, one of the best examples of that that just really struck me a number of years ago is how many historians, American historians, point to Harriet Beecher Stowe and Uncle Tom's Cabin as a watershed moment in this country's trajectory on slavery. And it's not like the abolitionist preachers hadn't been beating the pulpits for decades. They had, but the country was just at an impasse. 
And along comes this woman who indeed was an abolitionist, but she didn't preach. She just wrote a book. She wrote a story about a family. And it was one of the best-selling books of the entire 19th century. And it just connected to people on a level that said, you know, I can no longer be a part of this. And she wasn't preaching in the book. She was just telling a story about a family. That really speaks to me. So I spend a lot of time these days trying to tell the story in a way that people understand it. But also, I spend a lot of time telling the story to artists, hoping that they're going to then go figure out how to tell this story in a way that connects to us on a mass scale as a culture. I want to talk about some of your artistic projects, uh, and we'll get to that. But I wanted also to want to kind of conceptualize this conversation, because when I first approached you about having this chat, I suggested that we focus our discussion on how to talk to people about climate change in a way that doesn't make them feel so distressed as to give up. And you countered with the suggestion that we talk not just about climate change, but the full scope of global change. And that's what we're going to continue to do. But as I thought about this, it occurred to me that this is a good example of how overwhelming the challenges that we face are. As potentially bad as climate change is, it's only part of the onslaught of challenges that we face. That's absolutely right. And and of course, it's a realization that I came to over time. So as I said, I started off talking about climate change, but you can't really talk about climate change and solution pathways before you start to understand it's just connected. Everything is connected. And of course, it's a lesson we learn in principle quite early, but somehow I hadn't internalized it until this. So you find out that the human systems that are causing climate change aren't just our energy systems and our transportation systems. You find out that it's tightly tied to our food system. And you say, well, why is our food system this way and why is our energy system this way? You find out that underlying that is very tightly tied to our economic system. And then you say, well, why is our economic system this way? And you find out it's very tightly tied to what we choose to value as a society. In other words, it's very tightly tied to our culture. And so if you want to work your way towards solutions in climate change, you simply can't just talk about, you know, replacing coal-fired power plants with solar panels. And I sometimes use this quote from Eisenhower, that is, if a problem is too big to be solved, make it bigger. I think I might be paraphrasing slightly there, but not doing too much violence to it. And what he meant by that was, if you're not finding a way through your problem, you're probably not considering all the pieces of it. And it's very true with climate change. And so as I dug into, well, what is our economic system like and our food system like, you start to find out that climate change is just one piece of some Sometimes this word gets used too much, but I think it's quite appropriate here, of our existential threats to human civilization. And so climate change is probably our most acute piece of that. But fix climate change tomorrow, we're still facing some existential threats on a decadal scale, not centuries. And so it's important that if we're going to talk about climate change, we talk about these things that it's connected to, if you can really talk about genuine responses. One of the big and very powerful voices in this movement is Naomi Klein, who ties the climate crisis very compellingly to the economic systems, to capitalism. But I I like that you are making this a bigger question. You're making this a philosophical question. Huh, I have to think about that. I'm not sure if I am. I, I think I'm trying to make it a pragmatic question. But it certainly involves us expanding our understanding. Um, So for me, that has meant to the extent that I still function as a scientist. And actually, I should say I I think I do function as a scientist, but not in the way in which I was trained. 
most of our scientific training is very much reductionist. You know, let's keep breaking problems into smaller and smaller pieces and systems into smaller and smaller pieces so we can understand each piece and then try to build our models from there. And that takes us a very long way. But when you start talking about complex systems like a climate system or like societal systems, the human brain, for example, <laughs> you know, there are all kinds of examples. We find that reductionist approach only takes us so far. And so you also need scientists focused on synthesis. And so what I've pivoted to is synthesizing a really broad spectrum of not just the hard sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, but what I often call the harder sciences, you know, the social sciences, economics, anthropology, and the humanities, of course. If we can just pivot a little bit, because I've noticed like twice now in our conversation, and we haven't been chatting for very long, you've kind of caught yourself on this notion of whether or not you're still framing yourself, defining yourself as a scientist. Earlier, mm -hmm. you said like, to the extent that I still do science, and then you just said, you know, well, maybe this is still science. But didn't you said like the idea of doing synthesis, doing what is Honestly, like the really hard work of synthesis is not something that classically I think scientists have used to define themselves, but maybe we need to be doing that more. Unquestionably. And there are more and more scientists who are doing this. We're recognizing that we run into brick walls with reductionist approaches to complex systems. There's a lot from the reductionist approach you can bring to the table, but it's not enough. And so you have to pivot to this, not just, we often use the term interdisciplinary approach, but genuinely transdisciplinary, where you're, you're weaving things so tightly together you can't tell the difference between physics and psychology, or et cetera, et cetera. You have to speak the language of those disciplines. It's just not the way I was trained. And so it's been 15 years now of studying economics and agriculture and food systems, and I and by no means intend to pass myself off as an expert in those but I think I can speak a lot of those languages well enough now to, moving back to our storytelling, start to weave a coherent and holistic story that helps us, and this is where I get back to the pragmatic side, that with the final goal being for us as a society to make the best decisions we can that are actually have a chance of helping us navigate this really challenging landscape. You talked about putting together these holistic and pragmatic and accessible stories. But you joke sometimes in your talks that you're the guy who everyone is hoping doesn't show up after the event at the pizza party. <laughs> yeah. Is it hard to be the accessible harbinger of doom? You know, I've almost made it my mission to do that. I, for a long time, I felt like I was just telling people the science. And then you get this phrase, which I push against strongly, of doom and gloom. And I always, I frequently refer to the Titanic as this sort of fabulous metaphor for all things catastrophic. But imagine the, the lookout in the crow's nest yelling, iceberg right ahead. And the captain on the bridge saying, oh, doom and gloom, that guy is just no fun. Now, of course, it's an alarming message that you don't want to hear, but you want to hear it if it's necessary to hear it. And so, so what I've felt is that in this world of storytelling, of messaging, of communicating, it's been powerful for me to recognize there is a whole ecosystem of storytelling out there. And it's not necessary for me to function in every role in that ecosystem. My role is I'm trained in the hardcore sciences. So I'm going to bring that voice to it and that perspective to it to begin with and just sort of tell it as the science is telling it. But then rather than allow people to define that as doom and gloom is to push back and say, no, 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 this isn't doom and gloom. This is, it's alarming, but it's not alarmist. This is just the real message. And that is... I think something I can bring to it and then try to 
force the reframing. And we'll get back to your original opening comments is how do you move forward being optimistic? And it's taken me a long time to get here. But what I've understood, or at least to the extent that this really helps me, is in situations like we're in, optimism slash pessimism, hope slash despair is just completely the wrong framing. It's not that I am here to offer you hope, and I sometimes say this in talks, I absolutely have no hope to offer. At the same time, I'm not here to offer despair. And so give people the hard information and force a different mindset that makes that optimism, pessimism framing irrelevant. What becomes then the better framing? What is the framing that in particular moves people to action? Because that is ultimately what we need. The framing is resolve. Hmm. The mindset is that of an emergency. I'm using this term, and I think many of the scientists in this field that I work in use this term quite precisely. An emergency is a situation that requires an immediate response to prevent catastrophic outcomes. And that is precisely where we are with respect to climate change, need to respond immediately. This next decade is unquestionably the most important any of us will ever live through. In an emergency mindset, hope and despair are no longer part of the conversation. Well, they're kind of luxuries at that point, right? One of my favorite professors always made this statement that, you know, the great thing about analogies is they, they're understandable. And the bad thing about them, of course, is they're always wrong. But to the extent that you can make these analogies... When you're in a burning house, you just get out or you die trying, but you don't hope that you get out. You don't despair that you're not going to get out. You do everything that you can in front of you. And so pathways for response change radically when you're in a mindset of an emergency. There is no notion of viable or not viable. There is only a notion of what is necessary. And you're right. Like when we use these analogies, we're always going to be wrong, but we're definitely in a burning house right now. Do you think we'll get out? I no longer ask myself that question. I just think it's the wrong question to ask, and here's why again, because it's unanswerable. The challenges we face are unprecedented in scale. From a risk management standpoint, we're off the charts. I think to dwell on the question, can we navigate this, you can philosophically go down a rabbit hole of what does it even mean to navigate it at this point. We have lost a lot already. We're going to lose a lot more. What we need to focus on is not on what we've lost and what we will lose. We need to focus on how much there, and there is so much that can still be saved, and resolve to do that. Do um, you think that people are coming away at this point in time with the resolve that they need? And is that hitting the levels of people that it needs to hit? We see, you know, like climate strikes. We see young people, very young people standing up to world leaders. It's probably later than we all want this to be happening, but is it happening at the level that you think it needs to be happening to make those changes? Not yet, no, mm. but the trend line is good. There are many individuals whose resolve is strong and appropriate, but we need it as a nation. And again, the analogies, <laughs> which fall down at some point, but World War II is always a great focal point for people who study a democratic society, meeting an emergency, doing big things really quickly. And, and even going back to Great Britain, before the U.S. had entered the war in the spring of 1940, of course, it was what we would frame today in our discussion, as you and I are talking now, it was a hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. It's hard to overstate how completely hopeless the situation was for Great Britain. They were going to be invaded by the Germans within weeks, possibly even days at this point. 
And up to the microphone steps Winston Churchill, who is a complicated guy, to be clear. <laughs> but in this instance, I think he's incredibly instructive. And he steps to the microphone and says, you know, this famous speech, we shall fight them on the beaches and we shall fight them in the cities and on the hills and on the landing grounds and we shall never surrender, we shall never surrender. And if you listen to that speech, there is not a whiff of despair in it, nor is there a whiff of hope. It's just pure resolve. And this is, I think, if we're going to meet these challenges, and so back to your question, do I, do I allow myself to think, can we do this? I don't even think that far ahead. It's an unanswerable question what I can see are next steps. If we're to navigate this landscape, there are next steps that have to be accomplished. I think this is what I see in Churchill's approach. You don't actually do what's necessary in these extreme conditions until you have fully committed yourself to do that. And so we're not there as a society yet, but I think the trend line is in the right direction. And climate systems being nonlinear and being twitchy, meaning that we can cross thresholds and push ourselves into places very suddenly that we really don't want to be. The same is true for social systems in a positive sense. There are positive feedbacks and they are twitchy and it can seem like nothing is happening for a very long time. And then all of a sudden it's done. And of course, just below the waterline, lots of things have been happening, but it hasn't been quite visible or quantifiable. But at some point you reach this tipping point and you make big progress fast. And there are many examples of this. And this then, I think, is what those of us who are now in a mindset of resolve have to push for. Not waking up in the morning and saying, can we do this? But waking up in the morning saying, what's the next step? Well, and you, you mentioned earlier the artistic push that came you know, in, in the 1960s. You're not just running around giving lectures and writing articles and making videos, although you're doing all of those things. You're experimenting artistically. Two years ago, you launched the Crossroads Project, which is this really fascinating interdisciplinary exploration of global change with music and photography and lectures wrapped into it. What have you learned from this experiment? Yeah, and actually, I should say that this project is now almost 10 years old. <laughs> the germ of it came about 10 years ago when I was giving these, I think had developed at this point, some quite compelling and clear scientific lectures and felt like the audiences were coming out of it understanding intellectually what was happening, but still not responding, because they walk out of my lecture into their normal lives with nice jobs and nice cars and nice homes and nice food and nice vacations, and I'm not faulting anyone for that, but it's just hard to internalize the notion that you're on the hairy edge in a visceral way in those conditions. And so my conundrum was, how do I get all of us to connect to these things in a way that makes us feel like we have to respond viscerally? And of course, this is what the arts do for us. I mean, picture a, a lecture on the Holocaust versus watching Schindler's List. And so I have powerful experiences with music, particularly chamber music. And we have this phenomenal string quartet here at Utah State University, a world-class professional quartet. So I approached them and said, you know, I, I don't really know exactly what I want to do, but I want to bring people into a room. I want to push all the little things they're thinking about out of their heads, impose some really compelling information on it, and then just unleash some powerful music and see what happens. So we did a few preliminary performances in 2000, I want to say 11, of this concept. They were pretty rough, and the, the impact on the audiences was really quite striking. And people cried. People, I mean, left, moved. And so the quartet said, you know, we need to restructure this because it's got real potential and get some specially composed music, which we did and really look at the visuals that we're using and find some collaborators that can provide us some really powerful imagery, which we've done. And we've now given that performance uh, more than 40 times 
uh, across the country in the last, since 2012. I wanted to go back to finish up, back to where we started this conversation. Your initial trajectory into science was pretty typical, and then you sort of fell into the science communication, the science storytelling thing. What do you wish that you had been told in those early days when your trajectory was still quite typical? I think actually I'll change the question a little bit. Here are the things I'm glad I didn't know. So there's a lot of research on communication that says something like, you don't want to talk doom and gloom to people because it turns them off. And had I known that early, I may have really changed my approach. But what I've discovered is that it's far more nuanced than that. And in fact, there's research that's come out fairly recently in the last five or seven years. If you present people with enormous challenges and then present them with low-efficacy pathways— So I'm going to tell you that the climate is on the hairy edge and you should go home and recycle your newspapers and change your light bulbs. It just doesn't sound like a response that is appropriate, right? And so that does turn people off. But if you present people with large challenges challenges and high-efficacy pathways, even if they're hard, that tends to mobilize. And And that has been my experience. And I think if I had known that other thing first, I might have backed away and But I don't think that's how we get to where we need to go. I think we need the real information uh, coupled with high-efficacy pathways, even if they're hard. Yeah. Rob Davies, thanks for being here today. Thanks very much, Matthew. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Friday at 2 p.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Miadora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.